Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Hey family, I hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. This episode is part of my US road trip series where I travel through several states competing at the Houston World's Barbecue Championships and learning as much about barbecue as possible. The trip starts in Texas before going across to Louisiana and then up into Arkansas. It was a hell of a trip and I'm so excited to be able to share it with you. Before we get into it, I want to invite you to come join us at the Smoking Hot Confessions community on Facebook. It's a great place to continue the conversation. Also, make sure you get your free copy of my ebook, 27 Lessons Learned from Competition Barbecue. Jump on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. This will really help me spread that barbecue love. Folks, this one is special. I was walking through the French Quarter of New Orleans, drinking a giant can of mango margarita to calm my nerves, having just visited the most haunted house in America, the LaLaurie Mansion. Earlier that day, our city tour guide had told us some things about the heritage regulations of the French Quarter, and I was discussing them with my wife and her friend from college. We were going over it trying to get it straight in our heads when we passed a woman sitting on the steps of her original colonial cottage enjoying the last of the afternoon sunshine. So of course, I stopped to ask her about what the guide had told us. Turns out that Bonnie is a New Orleans local, loves to grill lamb chops, and has some very interesting things to say about life in the Big Easy. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Smoky Q Rubs and Sauces is the creation of founder chef Paul J. Lang and all products are proudly made by hand in Western Australia. All their products are truly unique with bold flavours that are perfectly balanced between sweet, hot, salty and savoury. Moreover, all of their products are completely gluten-free and contain no MSG, artificial ingredients, preservatives or fillers. Aware of their responsibility within our community, Smoky Q are proud to participate in the Western Australian Disability Engagement Program, providing meaningful employment and security for the less fortunate. Always in the pursuit of perfection, the team at Smoky Q aim to inspire everyone's inner chef with their Australian-made spice rub and sauce and rub combinations. To get your hands on these incredible products, head on over to smokyq.com.au. That's S-M-O-K-E-Y-Q.com.au now. Alrighty, Bonnie, thank you for joining me in the confessional today. How you been going? Thank goodness. I've been feeling okay. I had a bit of bronchitis um, a few weeks ago, but I seem to be over it and I'm breathing normally now. So that's really great. Yeah, <laughs> breathing normally is always very nice. That's all. It always helps. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, what was the last thing that you barbecued? We barbecued, well, I should say my husband. He's the chief uh, cook and, and barbecuer in the family, and he uh, barbecued lamb chops, which we love, lamb chops. Oh, lamb. That's interesting. It's very popular here in Australia, but I haven't heard many uh, many Americans talking about cooking lamb. How does your husband like to do it? Well, he likes to kind of just grill it. Uh, me, when I cook the lamb chops, I put them kind of like on a frying pan and saute them with a little onion and a little um, cooking sherry. 
But when he puts them on the grill, he just goes at it and turns up the flame, and they're nice and crispy and juicy. They're very, very good. Mmm, that sounds delicious. I'm getting hungry right now. <laughs> and tell me, what type of barbecue do you have? Uh, it's called the Master Chef, and you can, uh, you know, it looks like a big, uh, I don't know, can. You know, it's got this big top, and you pull it over, and um, it, you can cook two or three things at the same time. It's quite large. Charboil, I believe. Ah, yes, yes, I know that one. Very good. Yeah, you can do all sorts of things in them. You can even put a uh, put a spit kit in there and do some uh, some small animal spit roasting, which is always delicious. Yes, like a rotisserie too. You know, rotisserie chicken or something like that. You can also do on it. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Now, the reason that I've brought you into the uh, into the show today is because of the conversation that we started on the street there in in New Orleans a few weeks ago. And I was hoping that, that we'd be able to uh, to discuss that again for the listeners. So would you start off by, by telling us um, a little bit about your house? Oh, well, um, I was born in New Orleans in the house that you saw us sitting in front of upstairs. It used to sit down and was a what was called um, a double house or um, a Creole cottage. And my great-grandparents lived on one side, and my grandparents and mom lived on the other. And then my grandmother, being chief cook and bottle washer, used to take care of everybody. Well, when the great-grandparents passed away, my grandfather, in his infinite wisdom, raised the house, which I never understood. But um, I thought he kept meaning he built on top of it, but he actually raised it, giving us four apartments instead of the two. He built all the way through in what was once a courtyard underneath our four rooms on each side and four rooms upstairs on each side. So we have a, what they call a quadruplex. And it's one of the last, let us say, multifamily homes in the quarter because a lot of people, when the old people die off, the youngsters don't necessarily want to live in New Orleans or can't live in New Orleans or can't afford it. So they sell it and it be, they become condos. <clears throat> So there's not many quadruplexes left in New Orleans, but we have one. <laughs> wow, so it's it's quite rare, and you're in the uh, in the old French Quarter too. Yes, we're right in the quarter. Uh, three apartments I always have rented out, and the fourth one is for us to go in anytime we want to, or the kids, or we have people visiting all the time. Oh, that sounds great! So it was quite a coincidence that we managed to meet that day. Yes, fate. <laughs> yes, it was. Now, just on a side note, you're a couple of blocks up from uh, the LaLaurie Mansion, the most haunted house in America. Have you got any stories about the uh, about the LaLaurie Mansion? Uh, yes, the LaLaurie Mansion, uh, mansion is um, about two blocks from us, uh, two or three. It's down on Governor Nichols, well, it's Governor Nichols and Royal, and it's on the corner, and it was once owned by Nicholas Cage. He owned it about four years ago and then sold it. And it is the most haunted house in New Orleans. Um, and, of course, Nicholas Cage being Nicholas Cage, he didn't believe any of that. And then three years later, he's running for his life. But, hey, you know, to each their own. But it was becoming, our block was becoming almost, or was becoming, uh, Hollywood South. Because we had Brad and Angelina Jolie at the other end. Uh, they were at 525 or something. Uh, and Nicholas Cage and uh, Francis Ford Coppola is still there. 
which I know you probably know his name from The Godfather and all that. Wow. So you just like pop down the street to pick up some lettuce or something and have a quick chat yes. with uh, with, with Mr. Coppola. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. He's got his wine. He makes wine. And um, as a matter of fact, he might have passed that little Verde Mart store. And he's diagonally across the street from where he lives. And you'll find uh, Coppola's wine in that store as well as other places. I believe they, even, they had it in Walmart. They had it in several other stores would carry a couple of wine. I did see that, but I wasn't paying enough attention. I didn't put it together the, that that was his wine. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable, but true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so were you in New Orleans when Katrina hit? We were here. Uh, we were home because it was in August. Katrina hit uh, Louisiana on August 29th of 05. And it was 140 mile an hour winds. It was at that point the night before they were predicting it was going to be a category five hurricane with a direct hit on New Orleans. And fortunately or unfortunately, thank God, it didn't hit New Orleans directly. It hit Biloxi as a category five, but the storm was so huge uh, that the winds and the rain, it was considered a Category 3 on New Orleans. Now, um, with everything that happened, it's my belief that a lot of people made it through the storm, they, that decided to stay and, and not leave or evacuate. They made it through that, but unfortunately, the levees breached. And when the levees breached, that's when New Orleans was flooded. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't know what was wrong with these people. You could have put a kindergarten in a kindergartner in that position of FEMA or in some position in the government, and they would have done a better job, I think, uh, than what happened with the people that were there. They just had not a clue, if you ask me. They just didn't have a clue to to try to, uh, you know, fix this huge storm that hit one of their main ports. And the stories, I mean, there's just so many stories that every time I think about it, I either get angry or I cry. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's almost infuriating. And here it is like, you know, 13 years later almost. And I don't, there's still homes that are, you know, marked up and not fixed. I mean, it's a travesty. Yeah, I took a uh, I took a city tour, and the the bus driver was explaining all the different things that had happened, and he he took us to the levee wall, and we saw where it had breached, and one of the things he pointed out was that um, they just simply rebuilt the wall where the breach had happened to the same height to the same yes. specifications, and with the millions, and I'm saying billions of dollars that were collected and given, they were still telling us what was a year or so ago that, well, you know, uh, the levees still aren't quite secure. And I'm saying, what? <laughs> you know, what do you mean they're not secure? You know, it, it's just, I don't know what has to be done to shake them up. You know, I really don't. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of cities, a lot of states, um, like when Harvey hit, when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey, Harvey hit, I think, Texas. They learned something from Katrina, but I think Katrina was the map. I mean, I, I told you um, some of the stories, but to me, the most compelling stories, I believe, 
are from doctors and nurses and their choices. And I mean, one doctor explained that there was flooding at the hospital, so he and the staff, um, you know, stayed that they could, a minimal staff stayed, but they they brought all the remaining patients up to the highest level. And the waters had reached the second floor. And at one point, they saw an exhausted man swimming towards that second-story window that they were looking out. And the man had a small raft with a baby on it. And the doctor and the staff, all they could do was encourage him to swim towards them. And at one point, the doctor said that he and the man locked eyes. And he said at that point, the man shoved that raft forward towards the window. And fortunately, the baby made it, but the man didn't. He went under. I, I, you know, it's just they had to decide who could live and who could die, literally, because um, the decisions on who could survive um, had, when the helicopters came to be rescued. Uh, as he explained to me, there was an ABC criteria. A, people who could walk on their own onto the copter were first. The B people, I think it was, um, they had to be conscious and say their name. And if they needed a wheelchair, they could be taken. But the sea people who were unconscious or bedridden or who, who could not speak their name had to be left behind. I mean, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible. What had to be done? Nursing homes where the staff were contacted, they contacted rather, came to come and get their loved ones. Many were not reachable. Some never showed up. And the nursing home staff had to leave to save themselves. And they leave, they had to leave these poor elders behind to drown. I mean, you don't believe I'm, t- I don't believe sometimes I'm even talking about the United States. Yeah, it's hard to wrap my, uh, hard to wrap my head around that. I mean, from, from here in Australia, we just sort of got the filtered coverage through the media. And I think the, the one story that, that got the most press was, um, Kanye West standing up and uh, and having a having a verbal attack on George W. Bush. I think that was that that was the most prevalent oh, yeah. story that, that that we got over here. Yeah, I mean that's unless you were part of it. I mean, you just can't comprehend it. I mean, people literally dying on the streets while they were waiting for those the buses to rescue them that never came. Seven hundred buses were ordered or supposedly requested by FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency uh, Agency. But only 100 ever showed up. Families were separated when the buses did come. Children lost in one state while the parents were in another. Do you know it took some families six months to be reunited with their children? Can you imagine with your children, you don't see them for six months, you don't know where they are? How is this possible? It was a horror. Wow. Unbelievable. Huh. Oh, and the people, the many, many, many people who walked down Route 10 desperately trying to get to Baton Rouge, which is 75 miles from New Orleans, with little or no water in that August heat dropping on the sidewalk where you'd have a good Samaritan maybe cover them with something and keep I mean, keep walking. There was nothing they could do, and those super don't. I believe there was nearly 100,000 people seeking shelter there. And they only had enough food and water for 36 hours. After that, the people, to me, were treated worse than animals. 
I mean, there was no food, no water, no toilet facilities. People were urinating and defecating all over the floor. There were needles, used needles, in the bathrooms. No security at all. Some people were beaten to a pulp. Small children were raped. I mean, more people died from heat stroke. And it was like they were forgotten. And then don't talk about the First Lady, Laura Bush. She actually made the statement that since most of the people in the Superdome were underprivileged anyway, that the shelter is probably working out very well for them. What? I mean, oh. how do you say that? Uh, the whole thing, I mean, the, from the president on up or down, the president was on vacation. He claims he didn't hear about this for four days. Uh, other people had a FEMA or whatever. He claims, no, he got the wrong information. The buses were supposed to be sent, and they weren't, and then some buses were, went to the wrong new. I mean, how do you go to New Hampshire instead of New Orleans? I mean, what are you talking about, north versus south? I mean, it's un, it's just uncomfortable. It, it's like a, a, one of these uh, Keystone cops. It was a horror. Mm. Wow, yeah, yeah. And just, as I said, I can get angry and I get, I get to almost cry. I mean, another hurtful thing that, that I heard all the time were these victims were constantly referred to as refugees. And I think, wait a minute, we're in the United States of America. They are citizens of this great country in the world, one of the greatest countries in the world. How dare people refer to them as refugees? I, you know, I mean, truckloads, truckloads of water and food supplies driven by people from all over including friends of mine, including friends of my husband, people that we knew, they were held back. They were here they are trying to help out. They were held back at the border or wherever uh, in New Orleans of, of Louisiana because they were afraid that these trucks would be stampeded by desperate, desperate people. Well, of course. I mean, you know, they would drop things from helicopters, boxes and stuff like that of food, and then they said they had to stop that because people were just, you know, for, you know, running over it. But I said, you don't drop one box. You drop several. You know, I mean, of course I'd be running too. You told me 100,000 people. Drop 30, drop 100. You don't drop one box, two boxes of food and water. Other countries offered help. France, Japan, Australia, Indonesia, Italy, and all helped basically, that I heard, was refused because it made our country look weak. I mean, it, it, it's, it's infuriating. Wow. And the slaps just kept coming. Uh, and do you know there was at least one big hospital ship that sat offshore? It was 840 feet long, I believe. And it happened to be in the Gulf when Katrina hit. It had hospital beds for at least 600 operating rooms, doctors, staff. The ship also had the capacity to make, I believe it was 100,000 gallons of water in a day. And it sat there empty because no orders were ever given to help with the rescue. <laughs> oh, that just blows my mind. It, it blows your mind. You had to be going. I mean, it's just one thing after the other. It's just... Finally, some helicopters were on board and began uh, picking up stranded New Orleans residents off their roofs. Then you had the, the insurance companies and the banks, which we touched on when I was talking to you. 
Uh, and many homes were just abandoned in the face of this total annihilation. But those that returned faced additional um, slaps in the face, I guess you want to call it, when they made claims for their home, uh, their home losses. Some insurance company refused to pay at all, arguing back and forth that it was the wind, not the flooding, or it was the flooding and not the wind. So whatever you weren't insured for, that's what it had to be. So they didn't pay. And then the other insurance companies um, paid, but you did not get the full amount of money. And as I said to you before, you say your home was worth $100,000, but you had a $50,000 mortgage. You had maybe fifty-five dollars or $60,000 worth of damages. Well, the insurance company had to send any payments of claims to the bank first. The bank would decide to use your check to pay off the balance of your mortgage and return any difference to you. So now you have no mortgage, but you only have five or 10000 to rebuild your entire home. How the hell do you do that? Oh, that's incredible. The FEMA trailers. <laughs> if you or I did this, we would have been hung. FEMA trailers. FEMA ordered over 100,000 trailers to put on the empty foundations of homes that were destroyed. And as unbelievable as this sounds, by FEMA's own regulations, the trailers were uninhabitable. So they were left to rot in parking lots. I, I, I mean, I say this and I still can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Now, of course, we had a lot of ignorant and stupid people that said New Orleans deserved this because of the way sin is so rampant in New Orleans. Please. Okay. But uh, I have to say, too, on the other side of the coin, in the face of all this adversity, there were people who rose up to me like a phoenix out of the ashes to help their fellow man. And our beloved Saints football team got into their boats and went door to door, house to house, into the flooded areas and rescued people from their roofs or from inside the house. Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, Harry Connick, Ellen DeGeneres used their celebrity status to raise monies for the Southern people. Brad Pitt and Harry Connick were instrumental in building new homes for, for hundreds of people. Restaurants cooked and gave it away to the hungry and homeless that were out there. Walmart opened its doors and let people take anything they needed to survive free of charge. Doctors and nurses held what they call triage in tents, you know, to help people to, to survive and help the sick. I personally, one of the, the things that got to me too is I personally talked to one older gentleman. He was at least, I think he told me 75, but I think he was a little older, but okay. And who I feel, I feel he personified the true Southern spirit. This gentleman and his wife lost everything, almost everything, I should say, that they owned. They woke up to find an alligator swimming in their living room. Mm. The first floor of their home had been completely underwater, was completely underwater. So they were forced to keep going up the stairs, and they went to their roof, and they would spend three days on that roof in that heat with very little water. They were rescued and sent to the Superdome. God only knows what happened then. But here we were, like two months later, and this brave man, whose biggest worry in his retirement should have been where to go for dinner. 
He's now driving a borrowed car from his grandson as a taxi, taking people to and from the airport to make extra money. I mean, talk about the indomitable spirit. He had it. I, you know, and when I talked to him, I got his number so that I could always call him, uh, be it not to the airport. I asked him if he went other places and he would go here, you know, hither and yon. And, uh, I said, you know, I don't care whether it's safe or not to drive with him at 75 if he can see or not. He just, he touched me very deeply. I'm Robert Sierra, and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. Make no mistake, beef is king. Ask any competitor on the circuit, and the trophy they want most of all is the brisket. And you won't find better brisket than Black Angus Reserve. Black Angus Reserve is the leading brisket brand in Australia, and it's easy to see why. It's verified Black Angus, which has been grain-fed for a minimum of 150 days with a deliciously high marbling content. These briskets are so good that Black Angus Reserve are willing to put their money where their mouth is. They sponsor multiple grand champion winning team, Manning Valley Natural Smokers, who've won many trophies using their briskets. Not just that, but Manning Valley took these briskets to the World's Barbecue Championships in Houston and took out second place in the world. To get yours, hit up their Black Angus Reserve page on Facebook now. So let's let's circle back a little bit. Tell me about what happened to your house. Um, being in the quarter, as you know, New Orleans is like a bowl. Okay. Yeah, you're actually lower than the water table, aren't you? Yes, we are actually higher in the front quarter. Uh, we're a little above sea level. So we are higher in the quarter. We don't usually get the flooding. We get the winds. However, with Katrina and the breaching of the levees, the water came down Canal Street and was within four blocks of our home. Now, again, we were very fortunate because we happened to be the highest point in the quarter that we didn't get any flooding. We were very, very lucky. I mean, we had nothing, you know, the roof stayed on and... There was no, we weren't looted. We had police presence almost immediately. Um, in, in, uh, once the levees breached, they said that the quarter was going to be attacked uh, for looting. And so whatever police were left, we had literally on each corner. We had helicopters that were, you know, covering over it. Because like it or not, the French Quarter is the heartbeat of New Orleans. You lose it and you've lost all your tourism. So for me, the most damage that we wound up having is that one of our tenants in evacuating left windows open. And so the living room window, we had all this wind-driven rain, and my walls looked like a sack of potatoes, you know, because the water seeped through. And the, um, the wallpaper and paint were all peeling. He left the bathroom window open, which flooded my um, the bathroom upstairs and caused my ceiling in my bathroom to fall down. So lo and behold, even though we were out without water, so was everybody without water, without electricity, that was the extent. We had a minor flooding, as I said, from the windows being opened and the stuff falling into the floor. So we had minor flooding. 
But, I mean, the insurance company was very good, and then they paid us within 30 days. And, I mean, it's like you almost get special treatment. I'm, I'm not trying to brag about that. It's, it's, you know, when I'm seeing other people lose everything they own, uh, you know, we fared extremely well. Yeah, that's great. I had heard um, some pretty nefarious stories about uh, the insurance companies. Apparently, a lot of the people in the in the lower ninth precinct, their insurance companies had told them, "You don't need flood insurance. Don't buy flood insurance." And then, right. just a couple of months later, boom! And so, all the people from the lower socioeconomic areas in that lower ninth precinct ended up being the hardest hit, had the most destruction, and had the least insurance. The Saint Bernard's Parish, which is right near there, was literally wiped off the map. It was totally underwater, the whole parish. We say parish instead of counties or something. But, I mean, uh, St. Bernard's Parish, which is right there at the night, was, was, there was no more St. Bernard's Parish. It was unbelievable. And as I'm saying, a lot of these insurance companies, whether you had flood insurance or not, if you had flood insurance, they didn't consider it a flood. They considered it wind and refused to pay. I mean, there was the other one that you had wind. I had both. So I don't know how they figured all this out, but there was a major insurance company that refused to pay all claims. And I mean, I don't know what the heck you're paying for. It, it was, it was, as I said, it was a travesty then. I mean, I don't know. No one was prepared, and I don't understand that. I mean, FEMA is federal emergency. You should be prepared. I understand this was the biggest storm you ever had to face. I understand this. 450,000 people, but you, it has to be a, some sort of plan in the works that you have to either add to or subtract from when a tragedy like this gets. You can't just run around like a chicken without its head looking to do this or that and the other thing. I mean, how do you evacuate 450,000 people? And if you do, you put them in somewhere like the Superdome. How could you have absolutely no food preparation or cots or blankets or some sort of security where people aren't going to get beat if they go to the bathroom, which they can no longer go to the bathroom. You know, they had to use Harris. FEMA and the others were using Harris basement as, as a toilet. I'm beyond beyond. You know, I'm just, just as I said, I, I am just totally confused. I, this was the worst. I don't even know what you want to call it, um, that anybody can ever face from the president on down. The president's out playing golf, and he doesn't know this, and he doesn't know that, and he just learned this. And The governor of, of Louisiana is screaming for help. Mayor Nagin was enraged. He said, we don't need help tomorrow. We need now. You need to get here now. Get your access here now. I mean, he was just berserk because there's only so far, only so much he could do. Yeah, I'll bet. I think I remember hearing somewhere on the TV or something that um, it takes 12 hours for the US to put uh, soldiers on the ground anywhere in the world, but it took a week to get them bottled water to New Orleans. Yeah, I know. And I mean, it was it was just horrendous. It was horrendous. And people would be focusing on the fact that, oh, yeah, you see all these other people, they're, they're, they're looting and this guy's taking a TV, and he's taking this, and he's... Yeah, sure. There was no electricity, and there was no water. 
what are you going to do with the TV? Okay, if he took a TV, chances are he was going to have to use it to barter. Maybe it was to barter for drugs. Maybe it was to barter for food. But he sure ain't going home and plugging it in and watching it. There's reasons. And, you know, it would kill me, as I said, when I'd hear these people say, well, you know, a lot of sin in New Orleans and God's punishing them. Please, please. You know, I mean, I don't know. As I said, it, it drives me nuts. <laughs> I try to think about it. Yeah. So what can you tell me about the, the lower ninth ward? What sort of uh, water levels and things did they see? Oh, gosh. Most of them, I think this is where this uh, old gentleman was from. Um, he did mention where he was from in the ninth ward, and I forget the streets or whatever, but most of the homes were totally... Because don't forget, we don't have basements anywhere because of the water problem. And that's why you have mausoleums that are above ground. And mausoleums in the cemeteries, they were flooded out. And I was afraid I was going to go see, you know, Aunt Marie floating down Canal Street. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but um, the, people were, you know, I don't know doing what to the mausoleums, maybe getting on the roof of them because, again, they were flooded out. Cemetery was flooded out. Ninth Ward was totally flooded I mean, pictures that they showed us. Uh, I know in the museum, uh, let's see, there's the museum in um, in the quarter right next to St. Louis Cathedral. I don't know if you went into the Cabildo or the Presbyterian. That's right downtown, right next to St. Louis Cathedral. Anyway, um, they have actual pictures of the, the devastation and the flooding and how you just I think it was 90-something percent, maybe 92 percent of New Orleans was underwater. It's just, as I said, devastating, absolutely devastating. People were on their roofs for days, days, and because it was obvious it was so hot and you don't have much water or you have no water, and they're spelling out help, you know, with, with rocks and with tiles, anything on the roof to get people to come and get them. And that one doctor said the same thing. He was finally rescued with other patients. And instead of taking him to wherever, a hospital or someplace else outside of New Orleans, they dropped him off at another uh, area on Route 10 where people who were falling over walking to Baton Rouge. And he's saying, I don't have much more to give. You know, I'm exhausted from being up for three days. But um, if they had people on the roof, they would drop them on the highway. And uh, that wasn't much better. Wow. So take them out of the flood and drop them in a furnace, basically. And throw them in the, Yeah, exactly. Take them out of the fire, frying pan, throw them into the fire. Wow. So when so you it, say that the water's up was, to the roof, we're, we're talking, what, 20 foot of water? Oh, yeah, easy. Um, most people have, I would say, like... Um, a story, maybe you have a story. I mean, even when our house sat down, uh, you have some sort of like attic storage or space, or sometimes they make a bedroom out of it. So it is kind of a, a two story. I know this gentleman, when he was telling me about his house being flooded with the alligators in his living room, he had come down the steps and he got to like the third step from the top. And he's saying, he saw this peripherally <laughs> out of the corner of his eye, this tail, and it was the alligator. 
And uh, he kind of ran back up those steps because it would have been very easy for the alligator to get onto the steps and keep walking up. Yeah. It was that high. So um, he got his wife and he said, you know, we've got to block the, the door and we got breakthrough. I don't know how they broke through the sea. Not at that age. I just, I don't have the sense myself. Uh, and I'm 70. And I, I mean, he, to, to break through the ceiling and to break through the floor of the, the roof so you could get through the roof at, to the roof. And then to break through the roof so you could get on top of it. Uh, that is a monumental job. And yet people were doing it. Kids, babies. I mean, it was as I said, trout. Terrific. Horrendous. Mm. All right. I've got a bit of a bit of a left field question for you here. And uh, I'll ask it and we'll just see how we go. In conversations I had when I was in New Orleans, I had heard a conspiracy theory about the breach in the wall. So I thought I'd run this by you and just get your thoughts on it. The guy that I was talking to told me that a lot of people had reported hearing explosions at the time that the wall broke and that they were saying that um, yes. one of the oil ships had actually broken loose in the storm and had smashed into the wall and that's what broke the levee wall, not the storm. What do you think about that? Hmm. I, I rather doubt it. I think they had enough problems because they were talking about the levees not being secure. When I saw what they looked like, I could understand it. I mean, those levees were never maintained, never maintained. So the problem is they kept pushing that budget, saying, okay, we have, you know, a million dollars. We're supposed to use that to fix the levees. However, uh, the governor needs a new room added on to his mansion. So we shoved the money over there and fixed that. So one thing after the other, the levy money just seemed to be gone. And I truly believe if the levees had not breached, there would not have been the devastation that there was. But um, the, the wall, the conspiracy theory, which we, I did hear also, um, I don't know. I, I, I have my doubts about that. I do believe the levees broke because they just weren't maintained. Interesting. My theory. Mm. And as we said before, they've just rebuilt them to the exact same specifications, which is just mind-boggling. Yes, it is. Now, there was uh, a covert operation that did take place. Um, I'm not going to tell you that much about it, but let me just say that uh, there was a point where the helicopters who were dropping off food were being shot at by people on the ground. And this was being stated um, to the governor, to the, to the uh, mayor, that New Orleans was now in a state of anarchy and it could not be tolerated. We know that a certain group of soldiers were called in one morning, early one morning, like 2 o'clock in the morning. They knew where these basically drug addicts who were doing the shooting hung out they took care of them, let us say. And by 6 o'clock in the morning, all problems were erased. That I know to be true from two different sources. Oh, my God. I don't... Wow, I don't even know what to say to that. There is nothing to say. I didn't know what to say either, but um, 
I, are you happy about that? Are you not? I mean, I, I couldn't even answer that question. Apparently, according to both sources, it did have to be done. It was arranged. It was handled, and it's over. You cannot have anarchy. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. A key player in the barbecue scene is Clean Heat Charcoal. Whether it's sponsoring festivals, supporting teams or supplying the fuel for your backyard cookouts, Abel and his team work tirelessly to bring you the best barbecue experience. Their charcoal burns hot and it burns long. Clean Heat Charcoal embraces their global responsibilities as an industry leader and all of their products are 100% natural, sustainable and eco-friendly. The charcoal is made from an invasive species that is destroying valuable farmland in Namibia and they offer locals employment opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. Whether it's cooking burgers in your backyard or saving the planet, you can rest assured knowing it's made with clean heat. Clean Heat Charcoal is available all around Australia and will be hitting the US shortly. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram to learn more. Okie dokie. So about two or three days ago, I was talking to a fellow from um, up in Hammond, uh, just north of you there, about 40 miles north. And he was telling me that during Katrina, uh, he and a bunch of his mates got together and pulled all their barbecue resources and all that sort of stuff. And they... uh, they started cooking up straight away for the first responders, the fireys, the ambulances, the the helicopter pilots, all that sort of thing. And they just started cooking meals and meals and meals. What sort of um, measures were being undertaken in New Orleans for that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know restaurants um, that had, I remember this one restaurant in particular, La Madeleine, uh, had all of these um, bakery products. Uh, that they always made every day, uh, and they had loads of croissants and, and salads and all kinds of food, and uh, they just put a table out on the sidewalk, and they were cooking. And I know that um, several of the restaurants, K. Paul's, uh, Emma Lagazzi, they would bring out those big barbecues, and they would be cooking for you know, homeless and, and people that were ill. Don't forget a lot of New Orleans, most of them, a lot of them had evacuated. So the streets were basically empty and a lot of people at the Superdome. So to get to the Superdome, which is where you probably could have set up something that would have helped these 100,000 people, um, was still a good distance away. And a lot of people, a lot of um, soldiers, I guess, would be blocking trucks that wanted to come in or people that wanted to give clothes and shoes and, and do things for these these poor residents were blocked because they, they said, no, we can't let you in. We don't know if you belong there. We don't know if you have a house there. We, we have to show proof that we have a house because they wouldn't let us in. This was October when we were able to go back. Uh, so you had all of these, oh God, these missteps that you just couldn't get to where you wanted to go. And you had help like with you and you can't get there. That's, that's very sad. But those are people who could just put a fire together or put a barbecue, they had the coals and stuff, put it out, did everything they could. You had to watch it though, because now 
you had, as the, the, the waters receded, this is where you saw snakes and alligators and everything coming up from Lake Pontchartrain in Mississippi that were all over the ground. Wow. So you had to be careful, too. You know, I mean, I mean, my friend Hilton, he's funny. He's a hunter. So <laughs> if anything shows his head, it's getting blown up and on the barbecue. <laughs> so, so was there a lot of smoked gator going around New Orleans at the time? Oh, yeah, yeah. As I said, there are a lot of, because of the water, you would, you know, you go out like this poor guy. I went to go down his steps, but you would go out into your backyard and be sweeping some of the water out, and all of a sudden you hear, you know, and it's an alligator. Or it's, um, oh, God, it would be animals, you know, dogs, cats that would be floating, you know, from, from the water, from being drowned, and um, anything else you can possibly think of that, Snakes, especially, you know, they would crawl up sometimes up into the trees, and uh, you're trying to clean up, and you see something, you know, moving, and it's a snake. And as I said, Hilton was good; he would shoot it and then cook it. But um, but if you could get your hands on a barbecue or a grill, uh, yeah, you know, you would just cook whatever. I mean, one neighbor had her refrigerator filled with meat. But it, because the electricity went out, the freezer, she had to cook everything in there. Oh, so of course. she did. She just cooked everything out. And she had roasts with chicken and chicken with lamb and, you know, he just whatever she had in her freezer just went out on the grill. Mm, yeah, right. I hadn't even thought of that. But, yeah, of course, all the, all the refrigeration units would have gone out and that food would have spoiled. Yep, yep. So it was easier to have it, to cook it all. And uh, there's not even saving it because there's not, no refrigeration to save it. So, you know, as I said, if people, if she saw people, um, but then again, in the quarter, it was hard to do that because of the police presence. They wanted to know what you were doing there, who you were, and if you lived there. Or if you um, were there visiting, you had to have the person who you're visiting contact them. You know, they, they were very cautious at that point for the quarter. I don't know why, but... They were. So what, what sort of measures are in place now for taking care of New Orleans in the future? Um, I know that uh, that Operation Barbecue Relief uh, is in many states. Are they set up in New Orleans or something similar? Or what, just, just take us through what kind of measures are in place for the future. I hope so, Ben. Because, as I said, I truly believe that, I mean, a lot of the people that worked for FEMA resigned. I mean, they resigned the first month or so. It was way out of their hand. They just could not handle this. So um, a lot of people resigned. More people were put in place. Um, of course, we have a new governor. The mayor, Nagin, is in jail. Um, but anyway, he, he's had new mayor's new governor. She had resigned after a while. Uh, so you got new people. You have new blood. Um, it's true. This was one of the first major catastrophes with water that ever happened in the United States. So I believe, as I said before, Katrina was like a map. You know, this is what we did. This is what we didn't do. This is what we were too late doing. This is what we should do in the future, da, 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 da. Um, So I truly believe that if something happened like that, I'm looking at like Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey. They had a lot of lessons, they said, the, uh, the um, mayor or the governor, rather, said that, you know, he learned a lot from Katrina and FEMA and 
they were able, because that was a huge storm too, and they were able to move quickly with the insurance companies and, and worked with the banks and they weren't going to pull the entire mortgage out because in New Jersey, I mean, you have expensive real estate. We're not talking a hundred thousand, we're talking a million. So if you have damage in the, in the, for $250,000 and you have a mortgage that's 300,000, you know, you have to get something that you've got to build on something, you know, so you can't take a, full mortgage back anymore, I don't think. At least that was one of the lessons. But, um, you know, I would like to believe in my naivete that uh, there is a plan in action, although I have heard like two years ago or something like that, it came out where the levees were not entirely fixed yet throughout the state or throughout the coastline, and the something was not adequate, one of the generators or something wasn't working. And I'm saying, hey, guys, you know, we're coming up to hurricane season. June to September is hurricane season. Please, I don't want to know that nothing's working. You know, oh, come on. So uh, I don't know if they've learned their lesson in Louisiana. I'd like to think so. I can only pray that they do. Wow. Now, I, I just want to loop back to something that you just said before that stuck in my mind. You mentioned that the mayor is in jail. Is that as a result of Hurricane Katrina? Um, no, it's not really. Well, yes and no. Um, it's not really a direct result of Katrina, but apparently he was accused and sentenced, found guilty of accepting bribes, of handing out contracts to people uh, that maybe shouldn't have had them. I don't know all the details. But um, I did get to meet the mayor and Megan when I was there, and I, my husband took a picture of he and I. And when I got back to the house in New Orleans, I, I told one of my friends, I said, oh, look, I got to meet Mayor Nagin. And they said, well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Oh. <laughs> so I think it, it wasn't that well-liked, but he is in jail for several years, from what I understand, for accepting God. Wow. Well, that's... Whether that had a direct relation to Katrina because he was so upset and just took, I mean, we had people pouring in. I know we did, uh, you know, at the house in Gore. We had people, contractors, pouring in from New York, Idaho, friggin' Idaho, California, and with prices that were astronomical. Oh, you need this fixed? Oh, sure, okay. Uh, I need my. I have a player piano in our apartment, and one of the bellows went from all the dampness and stuff like that. So I figured, well, maybe now would be a good time to fix it. And then, and he said, oh yeah, yeah, I can fix it for you. Sure, six thousand dollars. I said, are you crazy? Is there a big call for this now? And he said, well, he said, you know, you can say to your insurance company that it's because of this or because of. I said, no, I can't. Can't do that. We had a guy who wanted to paint the upstairs. I told you it was a mess. Okay, so we had someone come in from New York, and he thought, my husband and I, my husband's from New York, and I was raised in New York for about 20 years. So um, he said, oh, New York, New York. Is that going to be a buddy type thing? Now, the rooms upstairs are quite big. If you can just envision this, each room, the house is a hundred, uh, about 105 feet long. Okay, and 30 feet wide. So if you divide that by four, just simple arithmetic, it's like 20 by 25, 
and the upstairs are their 12-foot ceilings. So those walls are high. So you're talking probably 950, 1,000, maybe 22 square feet. Now, you, I wanted him to paint two rooms, the front room and the room that uh, was like used as a dining room or something like that. That had the most damage. And the bathroom, I should say. Okay. He said, okay, uh, measuring. He was charging me 250 U.S. dollars per square foot. What? (laughs) He wanted something like $12,000 U.S. to paint these two rooms and the ceiling. And that didn't include the paint. My husband said, well, don't call us. We'll call you. I told are you crazy? I mean, the numbers that they would throw. And he was highly insulted. I happened to pick up the phone when he called. And he said, you told me I was going to be really screaming at me and all this kind of stuff. I said, yeah, you know what? I'll put my husband on for you. And so my husband says, I'm going to be back down in New Orleans in about two weeks. Because you want to discuss this in front of the house, I'll be more than willing to meet you. And, of course, he never showed up. Um... It, it, it was un, unbelievable, unbelievable how they were trying to rip people just off. Shameless profiteering. At that kind of time. And it's just absolutely unbelievable. Mm. I almost forgot about that until you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's been the, the legacy of, of Hurricane Katrina? What's What what state is, is New Orleans in now? To me, um, that older gentleman just absolutely made me believe that the Southern people can rise from the ashes like a phoenix. And the following year, in 2006 for Mardi Gras, that was their theme, was rising out of the ashes or rising out of the water, it should be. And um, that seemed to be, I mean, some people didn't come back, I have to say. You know, you have 400,000 people, I think, that left or that were sent to Houston, to Baton Rouge, to Atlanta, to all over the place. And some people, once they got settled a few months, they were not going to come back to New Orleans and be without a home and no money and nothing. So that's the people that just abandoned their home. But for the most part, the people that came back put their, bent their backs and started again. I mean, you have got to give them credit. I would like to think I carry some of these genes. Um, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know if I have that kind of stamina. But some of these people just start from scratch. Uh, the restaurants started with their grandmother's recipes again, you know, and making food. And you had people who were sewing quilts, who were selling anything they could do to put and make ends meet. So to me... The phoenix rising out of the ashes is is the legacy I'd like to see for New Orleans. That's beautiful. That's a really beautiful image of uh, of of survival and spirit. Well, look, Bonnie, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for sharing your your stories here with us in the uh, in the confessional. And um, I really uh, I I hope and pray that uh, that those measures that we talked about for the future of New Orleans is. Uh, I hope they're in place and that we don't have to ever have a conversation like this again. Um, yes, I certainly hope not. As, as much as I love talking to you, this is um, certainly a situation that we would not want to see revisited. Well, if you're ever in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg, and it's not wintertime, please look us up. 
And uh, New Orleans, of course, you're always welcome if we see you down there again. And, and if we get to Australia, you best believe we're going to look you up. Well, family, thanks for stopping by. I'm sure you learned as much here as I did. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review. And until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips and Ben's own confessions.